a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of the Lord found in Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Jenny. If you'd like to turn in your uh, pew Bible, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 25. Uh, if you want to look there in your pew Bible, it's page 1541. Um, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, he says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then when he, then he went on his journey, and the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his father's, his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The men who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents, and see, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, 
good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. And so I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share with your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. So here, here's what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus trying to tell us here? It's a parable. It's a story. It's not immediately obvious what he's trying to say to us because of the cultural distance between us and them. But first thing he's trying to tell us is that everything we have, all of the blessings of God that we are given, are blessings that we hold in trust. Let me retell the parable in a way that you might better understand. See, a talent was 20 years of wages for a day laborer, or, or about $400,000 in today's money. And so we have a man who's very well off, and he takes his money to Wells Fargo advisors, to Edward Jones, and to Stiffel Nicholas. I don't know what order they're in. They work with him. But they work for him. They're, they're, he is their client. And he, he invests with the first one $2 million. And the next one, he invests $800,000. And the next one, one talent, he invests $400,000. And having invested $3.2 million in these three various investment firms here in St. Louis, he then gets on his yacht and sails around the globe for a few years with his sweet wife, Monique, and their Rottweiler, Marks. After a couple years, however, he returns, and he calls in the first investment firm, and we'll make that Wells Fargo. And he says, okay, I invested $200 million. And like, you sure did, and we invested it, and, and it's now $4 million. It's doubled. And he says, awesome, good job. Here's my kid's $50 million trust fund. I want you to invest that too. You've been faithful in small things. I'm putting you in charge of a bigger account. The second firm comes in, whichever one that one is. It says, you invested $800,000, and we've got good news. We've had 100% return on your investment in just a few years, and it's now become $1.6 million. And, and he says, awesome. That's what I wanted. Here's my dog's $20 million trust fund. I want you to invest that too. They were faithful in little things. They took the risk. Now they're being given bigger responsibilities. The third firm he calls in, and they say, you know, Bob, 
you were a difficult client, and we didn't really want to work with you. And frankly, you're scary, and so is that wife, Monique, of yours. And so we just took your money, and I stuffed it in my girlfriend's mattress at her place. So the mattress is in the truck out back. You can get it there. Here's your money. It's probably worth, you know, not 400 maybe $390,000 because there's been a little of inflation, but it's, it's yours. Here, you get it back. And he says, are you kidding me? You could at least have invested this in two-year government bonds and gotten me a few thousand dollars in return. At least I'd I'd had something. You're fired. And so he slams the door on him. He takes the $390,000 and he gives it to Wells Fargo advisors saying, you need to handle this for me. That's the story. Now, in that story, with whom do you identify? Um, In almost every parable, there is someone who is representing God or Jesus or the king. And there is usually someone who is representing you, me. And very often there's somebody representing uh, whoever it is that Jesus is arguing with in this context, in this case, the Pharisees. Now, who do you identify with? If you're identifying with the, the, the guy with all the money and you're thinking, man, if they screwed me that way, I'd be ticked you're identifying with the wrong person. Um, Any Jew in the first century would have recognized that the person with whom uh, they should identify is that I am, you are, one of these investment firms, and your client is God, who has given you a whole lot of stuff to hold in trust. Uh, We hold it in trust. A few observations here. First of all, Jesus, who's the client, God, wants us to invest this blessing in his mission. He says, I want you to put this to work for me. And the first two servants immediately put his investment to work for him. Jesus' words here are a direct assault on the Pharisees, on the conservative religious establishment in first century Palestine. They are the third uh, 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 servant, the one who is not faithful, the one that has been given All of the promises of God, the word of God, the covenants, the temple, the sacrifices, the forgiveness of sin, and they have not invested that grace in the weak, in the needy, in the poor, in the lost, in the Gentiles, in all those people out there who need to know the grace of God. They've sat on it. They've stuffed it in a mattress. They've buried it underground. God had given them all of this blessings. What have they done with his grace? What does this look like in a church context? In a church context, it's as if Jesus gives us a congregation of 100 people, and he gives us the Bible, and he gives us these are our talents, and he gives us perhaps even a building, a beautiful building, and he gives us all of his grace, the riches of the gospel, the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God already accomplished simply by trusting in Jesus. And then he goes away for a few years, And then he comes back a few years later, and he walks in the church, and there are now not 100 people, there are 75 people. And he asks, guys, what what happened here? And we answer, and we say, well, you know, some of us have died, and some of us moved away, and the world around us is so filled with darkness, and it's filled with sin, and it's dangerous, and it's threatening, and, and so we decided to hole up in here and 
and we taught our people the Bible, and we've kept ourselves pure, and we've kept ourselves holy, and we didn't risk anything lest we fall into sin. We've kept ourselves pure for you. And Jesus replies, that's not what I wanted. I gave you this grace. I gave you the gospel. I gave you perhaps even a property, perhaps a budget. I've given you spiritual gifts and abilities. I've given all of you finances. I've given you all of this grace and blessing and the message of salvation. And I gave it to you so that you would put it to work for me, so that you would invest it in others. This is the mission in your life. It's why you're here. It's why I called you. It's why I gave you all these blessings, not just for your sake, but for the sake of your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers who don't yet know the grace of Jesus. There are all these people around you, and they need to know me, to experience my favor, to be set free from what holds them in bondage. I gave you all of this to invest it in them. And you did what? That's what it looks like in a church context. He gives us blessing. He gives us talents. He gives us wages in order that we might invest the gospel and invest everything he's had in other people, and the mission of Christ through his church and beyond the church. You see, we're not the owners. Everything we have, we hold in trust. Uh, Everything that you think you own is God's grace to you. It's it's a mind-altering realization when you you think about it, that that my apartment, little 700-square-foot apartment, does not belong to me, and, and frankly, it does not belong to my landlord. It belongs to Jesus. And Jesus Christ has personally handed over this apartment to me and said, Greg, I'm giving you these 700 square feet. They are mine, and I want you to put them to work for my business, for my agenda, investing them so that they will return a a dividend of blessing to other people. My car, your car, it's not your car. God has loaned you his car. You're driving his car now. And, and should you drive a car? And, and he's saying, I want you to put this car to good use. Who are you picking up? Who are you dropping off? Who are you picking up groceries for? What lady are you getting to her doctor's appointment? Who are you checking in on? How are you investing this car in my kingdom, in my purpose? Or have you just shoved it under the ground or stuffed it into a mattress thinking that it's yours and you need to protect it? It's for the sake of of others. It's given to us in, in trust. Um, you know, I think through even just financially, I've shared before the amount of money I make in a lifetime when you sort of zoom out and get the big picture on a life. Um, if in my lifetime I average $60,000 a year, which I'm just November 1st scheduled to get there. Um, but let's say I work averaging that amount for 35, 40 years total, going backward and forward, not 35 to 40 more, not going to happen. You know, you look back, and that means in a lifetime, I will have had two, two and a half million dollars deposited into my bank account. And you think that's, that's actually a lot of money when you zoom out and look at it from the big picture. Now, he gives different amounts to different people. Some of you, that's small change. Some of you, that's like you'll never make that. Uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm the, the two-talent guy, uh, not the five or the one, at least so far. But, but, you know, I think at the end of my life, 
when I look back and I ask, okay, Jesus, you handed me two and a half million dollars. What did I do with it? How did I invest it? When I stand before him in absolute grace and acceptance, not based on my performance, will what I have done with that two and a half million dollars have been what I really would have wanted to do had I been more intentional? If I step back and say, you know, is this really going to the things that I believe in and the people that I love and the things that I'm building my identity on? Is it really reflecting my convictions and who I think Jesus is and who I think he's called me to be and what I think he's called me to do? Am I investing it in the ministry of the gospel? Some of you are parents. I want you to try this one on for size. Your children are not really your children. Your foster parents, all of you, because your kids don't belong to you. They are a blessing that God has given you for his sake to invest in the cause of the gospel. It's, it's as if you're sitting there one day and a big hand comes out and cans you this baby. You're, you're Wells Fargo advisor. You're, you've got a desk, nice corner office. Somebody walks in, sticks a baby on your desk and says, I would like to invest this. I want a good return. That's what God has given for you. And it's going to shape your priorities as, as parents as you try to raise your children. What happens when your teenager comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I want to go on a mission trip to Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. It's a war zone right now, but they really need Jesus. Or perhaps somewhere in Latin America or some scary inner city. Some place where there's risk, where they may not be safe where you're going to have to decide, do you own your children or does Jesus own your children? And would you rather your child have, worst case scenario, a short but fulfilling life in service to Christ, radically sold out to him, and knowing that they are perfectly in line with the will of God because they are investing their life in the things of God? Or would you rather your child have a long and uneventful life spent in personal comfort and distractions. Jesus is saying, parents, I'm putting this child into your account. I want you to invest it. You're the manager of this account. I want you to invest these kids in the things of God, that they would learn what it means to serve me and to invest their life in the things that truly matter. It's a mind-altering realization that we're not the owners. We hold all of these blessings in trust. uh, And above all, investing the gospel. That's where the Pharisees had been blind. They had been given the grace of God and the promises of God, and they had not invested them in sinners, in the weak, in the broken, in the foreigner, the alien, the stranger, the non-believer. They had sat on it. Uh, Are you investing the gospel of Jesus that sins are forgiven fully in Christ, that if you believe Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I trust you, all of your sins are forgiven, Jesus carries your burden to the cross and is crucified and dies in your place, and you can live then in his place and get the blessings that he deserved, that he did that for you. Are you investing that in your children, parents? Are you investing the gospel in your spouse? Or are you still demanding that your spouse submit the control or or change? Are you investing the gospel in them? It's the only thing that will help your spouse to change. 
It's the only thing that will help you to change. Are you investing the gospel in your friends, in your coworkers, in your associates? Are you putting this gospel that, that is given to you every Sunday morning, are you putting it to work in your relationships proactively? Because a church isn't Christ-centered when the pulpit is Christ-centered. A church is Christ-centered when the congregation has a life that revolves all around Jesus and everybody who knows you knows that he is the center of your life, your hope, and your salvation. Are you putting it to the master's use, investing it? Are you holding it in trust? One pastor says that we are all two-year-olds at heart, thinking of the fact that everything I have belongs to the Lord. Um, You know, a two-year-old... Um, love two-year-olds. Two-year-olds, though, they haven't worked a day for any of their stuff. Um, they've produced nothing. They've just filled up diapers, and that doesn't count because that has no currency value. Everything, everything a two-year-old has has been a gift. Uh, and he doesn't even, a two-year-old doesn't even take care of his things, you know. But heaven forbid another child walks in and picks up your two-year-old's toy. What comes out of the two-year-old? Mine. You know, it's just instinctive. Really, come on, little Bobby. How is that yours? You never worked a day in your life. You don't even care for that toy. You don't even take care of it. Mine. You know, it's like, you know, the thing is, we're all two-year-olds. I've been a two-year-old for 41 years. We just find more sophisticated ways of being two-year-olds. And, and the irony is, though, that, that Jesus is saying that everything we hold, we hold in trust. It's not really mine. None of it's mine. None of it's yours. You say, I've worked hard, Greg. Long hours. I've got an education. I worked hard for all my things. A two-year-old. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. But, but what does that have to do with the fact that you didn't develop childhood le- leukemia when you were one years old? What does that have to do with the fact that you weren't hit by a car when you were 17 and left uh, paralyzed for the rest of your life? What does that do with uh, the fact uh, that all of these people gave you leg ups and hand ups and opened doors for you and wrote references letters for you and helped you fund a college education and helped you get by and affirmed you and gave you help every step of, of the way. You see, the fact that you have the strength or the intelligence or the ability to amass anything is itself God's gift to you. Who gave you your intelligence and are you using your intelligence in service to Christ? Are you investing that intelligence in the things? that really matter. Um, You can imagine how this explains the master's response to the third servant, the one who didn't invest. Um, It's as if, you know, you you were to hand over your house and your bank accounts and everything you have to uh, a trusted advisor, a steward who would be responsible for watching all your stuff and taking care of it while you went away. And then, you know, you went away on vacation and and sometime later, you're sitting in a, you know, Reeve, uh, you know, Reeve Gauche, uh, 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 little cafe, sipping your, your, your cafe in the cafe. And you're flipping through your iPhone, and you notice all these Facebook posts. And the Facebook posts are, are from, from this steward that you've left with all your stuff. And they're in Tahiti, sunning themselves on a very nice beach. And then there are shots of them in Dubai 
drinking cocktails, which the Muslims can't have, but they can because they're not Muslim. And, and then there's this, this photo shoot and this little video of them jumping out of a private plane, parachuting down into an eco-lodge in Madagascar. And then you flip over and you notice that your house is on the market all of a sudden. And uh, they're selling your house. And you, you'd, be, you'd be really incensed. You'd think, this is not, this is my stuff. It's not theirs. And it's what happens with the master when he sees this third servant who is unwilling to invest, incapable of investing because he is paralyzed by his fear and insecurity. Okay, everything we have, all these blessings are in trust. But notice that this is not a competition between the three investment bankers. You know, um, we all have different starting points. Some of us are given one talent, some five, some of you are given a whole lot of blessings in life, and some of you are given a whole lot more, and some of you maybe have fewer blessings than some other people. It's why, it's why your Jewish atheist next-door neighbor might be a better parent than you, because maybe they had really healthy parental role models, and maybe they had you know, really good genetic material that makes them just mild-mannered, and maybe they had a security and a love growing up in their own that you didn't have, and so, so they could be cool, calm, and collected while, while their kids are, are, are running wild while you are all bent out of shape, uh, because we all have different starting points. This isn't a competition, um, and this is, frankly, how tells us a lot about how leaders are developed, because each of these servants is called to invest whatever they've been given according to their ability. Uh, those who are faithful in small things are given bigger things. It's like uh, the pastor who tells a seminary intern, seminary intern shows up, hey, I'm ready to preach. Step aside, I got it. And it's like, no, actually, I want you to go paint the basement. And I think, wait a minute. Really? I don't want to do that. Huh. Well, then you're not going to get in the pulpit because you weren't faithful in a small thing, you're not going to be given big. I've seen this for, for years with, with, with interns where there's somewhere you can tell them just whatever needs to be done, and they are on it. And those are the ones that I want to write a recommendation letter for. I want to open doors. I want to network for them, and there are others where they're too focused on wanting the status, the big public thing, and they're not faithful with the little things. They complain in the little things, and so they're not ready to be given bigger things. It's not a competition between us, it's a question of being faithful with whatever it is that God's given you, whether it's uh, a ministry or a relationship or a marriage or a house or a financial means or certain gifts or abilities or relationships or networks, whatever. You know, instead of pining after what you wish you had, to actually be thankful for what you've been given and treat it as a steward saying, Lord, I want to be faithful with this little thing and uh, as you're faithful with that, very often God will then put you in charge of something more, uh, more challenging, more complex, more difficult, because you've proven yourself. Um, but the outcome is not what matters here. What matters is the fiduciary duty. The problem with the third servant was not that he didn't get results. The problem is he didn't go out and take the risk. He didn't actually do do the, the work. He was paralyzed by his insecurity. He was afraid. He was saying, God, I'm not going to invest my money in your kingdom because I might lose it. I may not be able to pay my bills. I might miss out on something. God, I'm not going to invest my home in serving other people because I might feel less secure and they might damage it and would cramp my lifestyle and I don't know what might happen or where it might lead or what obligations I might end up with. God, I'm not going to share your gospel with other people because they might think that I'm weird or they might take advantage of the grace, but you, you hear the fear. 
the insecurity, the selfishness throughout, what makes the difference? What is it that can transform the fearful, insecure person who cannot take risk with grace, who cannot let go, who cannot invest? What can transform them into the kind of free, risk-taking kingdom investors that we long to be? You see, we hold every, every one of God's blessings in trust, and it's not a competition But what is it that can free us to become risk-takers, kingdom investors? How is that possible? And you see it in this passage that to invest God's grace, you first have to understand the master's smile. Did you catch that? You have to understand and see the master's smile. Look at how the last servant, the unfaithful one, viewed the master. He tells the master, you're an angry ogre. You're the guy who steals from other people's fields. You don't even harvest your own. You harvest everybody else's. You're just that kind of God. You're demanding. You're angry. You're an angry judge. You're unfair. You can sense in him the dread of God, the dread of the master. I don't think God really likes me. I want to keep him at arm's distance. I don't really feel safe near God. I don't want to be intimate with him spiritually. The fear and the insecurity of all of that, of constantly having this pressure to perform but being crippled and unable to do it, they represent the Pharisees. They represent human religion, and what human religion in any form will do to you is it will make you afraid, it will make you crippled, it will make you unable to take a risk, it will make you unable to give, unable to serve, unable to sacrifice, unable to have any joy in the midst of that because of how you view God. But look at the master's nature. He says, come and share in my, what? Happiness fundamentally God is a joyful God, a happy God, a God filled with delight, delight in his creation, delight in his son, delight in all that he has made, delight in himself and his own excellencies, and delight in you as you come to him with faith in Christ. You look at this theme throughout scripture, Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not your joy in the Lord, but the Lord's joy The joy that Yahweh, your God, has day and night as he delights in himself, as he bursts forth in psalm, as he he invites the trees of the field to clap their hands as well. The boisterous, jubilant happiness, the blessedness of God. 1 Timothy 1.11 speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Makarios, the happy God. John 5, Jesus says these things. I have told you so that my joy may be in you, Jesus, filled with joy. God the Son, filled with joy and happiness, longing only that you would come and share in the Master's happiness. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 13, Jesus prays that they, the Christians, might have my joy made full in them longing for his joy as a joyful savior to overflow to them. Luke 15, the the parable of the lost sheep. I had to rejoice and be glad. I found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me. He's already rejoicing. The Bible says that God is love. 
The Bible doesn't use that level of description for any of his other attributes. The Bible doesn't say God is wrath. God is mercy. God is name your attribute. But it says God is love because at the center of God's being is a love, a delight, a joy, a loyalty, a covenant faithfulness that is at the very center of his being. You're in the presence of absolute, unrestricted, unbridled, overflowing love and joy and happiness. How you view God defines how you're going to respond to him. You know, you say, ah, grace, 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 Greg, I'm, I'm so sick of hearing about grace. And, and yet, St. Paul says that I resolved nothing to the Corinthian church. I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except one thing. Every sermon, every counseling session, every Sunday school lesson, every conversation, one thing I talked about, which is Christ and him crucified. The apostle says it's the grace of God that enables you to say no to sin. You want to change? That's great. You think, I need the law. No, you need the gospel. Because this third servant had the law. This third servant knew that God was a judge. He knew that God was demanding. He knew that God was a judge and and that judgment was coming. And it had absolutely no power to transform or set him free. It was only the smile of the father, the smile of the master, to come in and share in his happiness. It's the only thing that can change you. Until your theology changes, you can't do it. Uh, And that changed theology, frankly, has to get down into the heart level. As you picture the face of God here this morning, I want you to close your eyes for just a second, if you will, and, and imagine the face of God right now as he is looking down upon you. Technically, this might be a, a uh, um, violation of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm not really certain. Probably larger catechism, definitely. But picture the face of God as he looks upon you. And, and what face do you see? Do you see his smile? Do you see his happiness? Do you see the laughter lines on his face if he had a face? Do you, do you see the, the, the dad in heaven kicking back his shoulders and laughing boisterously? Do you see the happy God saying, I only long that you would come and share in my happiness. I am filled with delight right now. I am jubilant in song. And I long for you to come and share that with me that we might be happy together, that we might be jubilant and burst into song together. Do you see a God who makes a million squirrels every single day and a million bunny rabbits and he turns around the next day and does it again? You know, do you see the kind of God who delights in his creation, who's, who's so filled with beauty and wonder? G.K. Chesterton, in his, in his book Orthodoxy, he says this. He talks about kids. He says, because children have abounding vitality. Wish you could bottle that. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. And they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, 
For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than us. As you look at the face of God, what do you see? A God who delights in his creatures, who makes kittens and puppies every single second and turns around and makes more of them. A God who is filled with happiness, who delights in you, who smiles upon you. Do you see the radical happiness of God? When you do, friends, it sets you free so that you might come and share in your master's happiness. How can God change the greedy, resentful servant into a joyful, risk-taking servant? How can he change your experience of God at a foundational level? Friends, that ultimately took something more than you or I could manage. The Bible says it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of, of the Father. Jesus, filled with joy, filled with happiness, giving up all of that happiness, giving up the life of the Father, giving up the blessing of the Father on the cross because he wanted more joy than he already had. He wanted the joy of having you share in his happiness. And it's for that joy set before him that he did what you could not have done yourself. He purchased you from sin and Satan and death itself and set you free that you might have life, that you might have a life that actually looks upon him and sees his smile and invests that grace, that gospel, and all those blessings in other people. I heard the story recently, uh, it was several years ago, but I just recently heard it about Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson is a Turner Sports and CBS Sports sportscaster. Uh, won an Emmy, I think a couple Emmys for best sports broadcaster, one by himself, one with someone else. Um, there's something in Ernie's story that made it take a radical turn. It was in 1997 that Ernie met Jesus. He became a Christian and was baptized. Some years ago after meeting Jesus, he, he and his wife, Cheryl, um, she's a, a licensed professional counselor. They were sitting on their couch one day in suburban Atlanta, and there was this 2020 program about Romania. You remember the horrors of the state-run orphanages there and the children who were just languishing there, uncared for, untouched, unloved. And his wife turned to Ernie, and she said, we should go get one of those kids. And they had two beautiful kids already and a beautiful home in the suburbs. They had it all. And a couple weeks later, though, Cheryl was in Romania. And they agreed she was going to go find a cute little girl between the ages of six months and 12 months in perfect health, cute little thing. And they would rescue this little Romanian girl, and they were going to be the heroes. And uh, so she goes to Romania. She's in Bucharest. She calls back to Atlanta. Uh, he picks up the phone. She says, Ernie, I think I found the child. He says, Awesome. He's two and a half years old. He's virtually never been out of his crib. He can't walk. He has a club foot. He's been abandoned since birth. He's never been outside before, so I took him outside today, and he screamed in horror at the alien sunlight. Uh, it scared him. He's malnourished. He's deeply autistic. He'll never form any relationship with you or with me. He'll probably never speak. He'll never connect with us on an emotional level. We, you know, he, 
he won't essentially acknowledge us as his parents. And this is what his wife tells him. I found the one God wants us to adopt. That wasn't the deal. And out of Ernie's mouth came words that can only be generated by someone who has seen the smile of his master. Three words. Bring him home. That boy in some ways progressed more than ever could have been imagined, but in other ways he's deeply broken. Uh, Physically and in other ways requires extraordinary care from his very busy parents. They've adopted uh, their children too. That's a couple though that's, that's seen the master smile and it's freed them to take risks, to invest that smile in others because, friends, that is what Jesus did for them and that is what he did for you. He found you deeply damaged, lying, abandoned, and unloved in a Romanian orphanage. He saw you, and you had nothing to offer him in return. Even the relationship you would offer him would be so less than he, as a delightful God, would long for. But in his happiness and his compassion, he saw you alone and abandoned, and he said, I am bringing you home. And he's brought you home, and he's given you family. He's washed you, he's healed you, he's restored you, and he's given you blessing upon blessing upon blessing to hold in trust that you might share in your master's happiness. And out of the overflow of that joy, as one loved and rescued, you might then invest that grace and those blessings in others. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, I give you thanks for your love and your compassion to us, your children. You have been faithful, Lord, and so we consecrate the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you might minister the gospel to us and help us to see your smile anew, Lord, that we would believe Jesus, your son, when he says, I have saved you, I have washed you, I have cleansed you of your sin, and you are now clean and you are mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you thanks in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.